couple of years ago, the Bleacher Report had a fun little sports list uh, entitled 15 Instances in Which It's Actually Okay to Cry in Sports. <laughs> I thought it was kind of a fun list. They came up with a couple things. <clears throat> the first one is uh, whenever your child is competing, right? Uh, you know, we get so wrapped up in our child's success that when they finally get recognized for it, we just sort of cry over it, right? Uh, other times, it's times whenever you're talking about your mom. Nobody thinks to thank the father. Why? <laughs> because it's the mom's sort of tender, patient, enduring love. At other times, you know, it's when good people are struggling with bad things. You know, for instance, when the former free safety for the Saints, uh, Steve Gleason, gets up to talk about his ongoing battle with ALS. Turn on the waterworks. We're moved by those things. But what was interesting to me about the list is how often they identified as things that are legal cry times as whenever all of your hard work finally comes to completion. You know, you finally find yourself standing on the podium being presented the gold medal. <clears throat> or when you find out that you're at last being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, or maybe you attend the draft in person this year. Those are the moments that seem to move us emotionally, don't they? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when Dustin Johnson, after this amazing performance in the Masters, stood up on that final green, could not control himself. He was so emotional. What's the point? The point is, is that the events that tend to move us the most are the ones that represent this, this culmination of a long struggle to succeed. When, as it were, the times seem to have reached their, fulfill, their fulfillment. When we see what all the twists and turns were finally leading to. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because I think that that gets the closest to the emotional experience that the angels are having when they announce the birth of Jesus. That's what they're talking about. We started last week a short little Advent series from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where Peter, after he unpacks this, this history of Christian salvation, says, oh, and by the way, the angels long to look into this. They are fixated on the wonders of grace that God has woven into redemptive history. And so today we look at that as these, as these heralds come to unpack this announcement to Mary and Joseph, we hear in their tone almost a bristling, don't we? There's an anticipation and, and an excitement Almost as if they're saying, just wait until you hear this. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. And so what they begin to unfold this to them in the announcement of, of Jesus' coming ends up taking on the very structure of the kingdom they're announcing. Now hold that thought. We're coming back to that in just a minute. But I simply want to say this morning is that in this way, the angels are our models for human beings. In other words, the same way in which an angel has found fascination in the nature of the gospel, so too should Jesus' followers find the same wonder in the event. Why? Because wonder changes us. And in that sense, Christmas itself is supposed to be transformational. It's supposed to, it's supposed to lead us away from what we oftentimes become very moralistic about when it comes to Christmas. We're also condescending to the, to the consumerism and the, uh, the gross commercialism that defines the season. But I still would argue, especially among the younger of us, that those experiences are always outweighed by the wonder of Christmas. You still see it. You just forgot it. 
It's in the glow of your Christmas tree as it sort of appears on a, on a Christmas night. It's, it's in that wide-eyed look of our children's faces as they experience magic and anticipation. It's even in that rush of nostalgia as our family comes back in to be gathered again. In those moments, we see something that Christianity says is true about the world around us. And when all of a sudden that wonder begins to capture the heart, it begins to change us. But here's the catch. Only if it's in keeping with what enamored the angels. That is, we've got to remember the real wonder of Christmas. And if we don't, we fail to get what it's supposed to do in changing us. Okay, so that begs the question, what exactly did these angels announce that was so thrilling? Well, I think there's at least four of them that I've drawn from these two passages that we looked at. There's an invasion of a supernatural world. There's the advent of the God-man. There's a display of an upside-down kingdom. And then there's the rest of a sure salvation. So those four things. Let's jump into number one, this invasion of a supernatural world. Okay, look, to grasp this, I want you to see what's going on in Matthew 1.19. Why is it that Joseph is saying that he needs to divorce Mary? Well, it turns out uh, that betrothal in that particular uh, society was a two-stage process. Process number one uh, was what we called the betrothal. And there was sort of a formal witnessed agreement for the two of them uh, to marry one another. Uh, and at that point, the bride sort of legally became united to the groom and could even be referred to as his wife. But that wasn't, it usually wasn't until almost a year later when the actual wedding followed and the couple would go and consummate the marriage in their home. So what we assume about this passage is, is that Joseph and Mary are in that betrothal time, right? Which sort of helps us understand why he makes a decision to divorce her. Why? Because she's pregnant. Now look, at this point, we're like, and he's going to abandon her then at her most vulnerable moment. But don't, don't be too hard on Joseph here. Because uh, it actually turns out that it was within Joseph's legal rights in that society to publicly shame Mary for what obviously has happened, right? But he doesn't do that. The text goes out of its way to say that Joseph determined to divorce her quietly. So there's, there's some kindness there. But the angel comes to correct him. But what does she correct him on? What is it that the angel is saying? And I want to say, why did I say she? I think it's a he, <laughs> the angel. Bear with me. What was Joseph going through in that moment, though? Well, I would submit to you that the angel had to come and deal with Joseph's inability to see that there was another world around him. That is, Joseph was living in a non-supernatural worldview. And the angel has to come along and explain that, look, Joseph, what you see in the visible world is not all there is. There actually is an outside world to the visible realm that intersects and interacts with the affairs of men. In other words, the angel saw that Joseph was just about to miss out on this amazing thing that God was about to do because he wasn't seeing the world the way in which God sees the world. He's through these naturalistic eyes. He'd gotten myopic, right? I mean, we still see this today. I, I've always found it a little bit curious, people's opposition to the doctrine of the virgin birth. Fewer and fewer people actually are embracing the virgin birth, even those who have a high view of the Bible. But it's always been curious to me because I'm always like, if you're willing to concede that there is a God who is himself sort of above the creation of the world and was responsible for the creation of the world, 
why is it such a stretch for you uh, to sort of assume that on certain occasions he can overrule or perhaps change the consistent motions of creation? You know, even including being able to bring life in the midst of a womb of a woman. You know, why are we so quick to dismiss this existence of another world that exists outside the realm of ours? That place where the angels dwell, this divine council, as the Bible describes it, of both obedient and fallen angels. And oftentimes we think that the reason for it is, is because, well, we're just too rational. I'm too logical. Less until I can have a rational, logical, explainable uh, reason that sort of uh, uh, fits in with my 21st century uh, rules of scientific inquiry, I just can't buy into those kinds of things. Well, the Bible actually has a very different view of our objection to that, and it's, not, it's actually a little less flattering. We don't want to acknowledge another realm because I think we intuitively know that if I admit that that world is there, i got to submit to it. And that I don't want to do. Commentator N.T. Wright says this. He says, perhaps some of the fuss and bother about whether Mary could have conceived Jesus without a human father is because deep down, we don't want to think that there might be a king who could claim this sort of absolute allegiance. Oh, I think he hit the nail on the head. It's not that we can't be convinced by logical argument that that realm is not there. It's that we don't want to believe that it's there. Because I've got to change if we do. But for those who do believe, like Joseph, there's actually some really good news. And it's the good news of the fact that if there is another world that's out there, and my life is more, has more meaning than just my circumstances that I can see, it means there's always hope. There's always hope. The angel is coming into Joseph and trying to keep him from despairing over our circumstances. Is there ever a time in which we needed to hear that more than now? Don't despair. There's a whole new world. God is actually working. That's why he's got this electricity in his tone. Uh, you know, you may not realize it because he's so good at covering it up, but our assistant pastor, uh, Melvin Monica Vosicum, uh, is visually impaired. You may not realize that. Um, but what that meant, though, was that when we all as a staff and, and a church were experiencing the joy of watching the building go up, remember how fun that was to see new things added? Melvin couldn't see it. He couldn't be a part of it. But you know, one of my favorite times, and I was thinking about this in this last week, in the last uh, six months, was the first time I took Melvin through the building. Because I could see what he couldn't see. And as I walked him around, I could see him mapping it out in his head, piece by piece, as I explained what this room was. As I was like, here's the path to your offices. Hey, count the steps until you get here. And there was such a joy that came over in his face when he suddenly realized, man, we're moving into a nice place. See, that's what the angel is doing. It's like there's this other world just beyond your senses. But once you see it, it'll bring about wonder. So the first thing the angel says is, is this announcement of an, of an invisible supernatural world. But secondly, the announcement talks about this advent of the God-man. Look at Matthew 1.22. Because in those two verses between 22 and 23, Matthew goes back and connects what's happening to a prophecy from Isaiah 7, verse 14 in particular, that when the son of David comes, he will be called God with us. Which, by the way, is a huge claim and clearly something that became very central to Matthew's writing 
We know this because he ended his gospel in the exact same way. You remember this at the end in in Matthew 28, verse 20, 20, last verse in the whole book. The last thing he has on Jesus' lips is, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So he bookends the entire book with this concept of Emmanuel, God with us. Hey, look, you need to let it sink in that this is so unique in world religions. Nobody else has anything that claims that God comes and dwells with us as a man. But it's not just jaw-dropping, it's also essential to the message of Christianity, which I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about on the incarnation. But I do think it's important to focus on the angel's announcement. What exactly is he getting excited about? Well, I think simply this. He realizes that if God has become man and God is with us, it represents the fact that heaven and earth are coming together again. Okay, bear with me now, because of all the things that I really want you to grasp, this is a big one. The story of the whole Bible, beginning in Genesis, which opens up in a location where heaven and earth are actually the same spot. It's a mountain garden that we know as the Garden of Eden. But of course, mankind sins, and they're exiled from that place. But from that time on, heaven and earth are separate. They're not being able to, one cannot see and interact with the other. This actually gets pictured when God instructs them to build this sort of worship tent called the tabernacle by this giant heavy curtain that separated the outer parts of the temple from the inner sanctuary where God dwelt in the holy, the most holy place. So for a Jewish person, human history was waiting for God to reunite heaven and earth when God would come and repair this breach, when he would tear down the veil, (laughs) which is very interesting because Matthew's the one who records at the very end of Jesus' life on the cross as he died, guess what happens? The veil splits. Suddenly, heaven and earth have begun to be reunited. That's exactly what's being considered. Now, but not all of Matthew's readers, of course, got it, especially with the Jewish readers. Why? Because the Jewish readers, they still wanted to hold on to their status as the special people of God. It was pride, just like always, that keeps people from seeing how amazing what the the angels are announcing. What I want, though, for us, though, is to realize the Jewish expectation is still in force. That's not changed. And we know this because of what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. Look what it says there. That in the fullness of time, God would set forth in Christ a plan to, and the actual word there is, to reunite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There it is again. So human history is moving to this time when heaven and earth come together again. When God shows up cloaked in our humanity so that he can save his people. I, I, I try and I try to find ways to illustrate this. And I don't know if this one's very good, but I'll try it. A number of weeks ago, I was reading out of a leadership journal, uh, a guy who was, who was uh, talking about how great his first boss was because he lived by a mantra that he had come to, rec- come to really admire. And it went simply like this. I'm never going to ask you, my employee, to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. The guy said he loved it. He was, a, he was a leader who was prepared to get his hands dirty. Well, he said on one occasion, all of the information technology systems in the company completely went down. And he said instead of sort of delegating the problem down the line 
and probably yelling at them as they did, as they got it done or didn't. (laughs) He said, my manager stayed on the phone all night long with the support team. And he even on the other side was sort of an absorption for all of the inevitable complaints that followed afterwards. The man said, it was the greatest leadership lesson I ever learned, that great leaders lead best alongside. Now here's my question to you. Why does that ring true for us? Why do we look at that and say, yes, that's got to be true? Is it possibly because the universe runs on the same principle? That God works under the same rules, that God comes down and he dwells, and when he does, we're changed because of it. So the advent of the God-man, that was a big deal for these angels. They realized history is now begun. (laughs) It can start right here, which is why the earliest of Christians reset the calendar, did they not? Because they assumed human history had begun again. Thirdly, we also see, though, this display of the upside-down kingdom. This is another big one right here, which we talked about this time last year, as I'm sure you all remember. Um, But I'll be brief, because it bears repeating. When Gabriel comes to Mary in Nazareth in Luke chapter 1, you get this amazing contrast, do you not? Because Gabriel is delivering literally world-shattering news. But who's he giving it to? Who is his audience? (laughs) It's Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, I think sort of Gabriel delivers this with a smile, because he has to when he says, for nothing is impossible with God. And you're going to get this theme over and over again in the book of Luke, where the kingdom of God gets announced to these unlikely players. And you contrast them, contrast that with the value that we put on human events in our day, and it's dramatic. Poverty-stricken Mary and Joseph is where we're going to get this big announcement, not to the power brokers. Uh, Duke Kwan, a PCA pastor who I love following on on, on social media, uh, had a thing on the profound irony of Christmas a couple years ago when he said, look at the irony, majesty amidst poverty, the extraordinary amongst the ordinary, the incredible amidst the mundane, greatness amidst humility. You get this contrast in Gabriel's message to Mary, which by the way, freaks her out as well. So you try to unpack what exactly is the, are the angels wondering at in this sense. And I think you can trace it back to a prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah 4.10. In that prophecy, the, the writer says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. If you go back and read it in context, Zechariah was talking about the rebuilding of the temple and that it was going to come from very humble beginnings. But what was happening was, was Yahweh was training them to see the world differently. It's upside down. We think that the wealthy and the powerful are where the real action is. And Yahweh is saying, no, it's in the tiny little places, the out of the way, the small, the weak, the unseen obediences. This is where history is turning. And you think about that in contrast with what we think. Where are the great motions of human history? Of course, it's in the American presidential election. That's where all the action happens. No, it's not. Those things pale into significance in the way that a Christian sees the world. Because a Christian sees the world moving in these tiny little obediences. I wonder if you've ever heard of something called the butterfly effect. Apparently there was a guy by the name of uh, Edward Lorenz who was a mathematician uh, at MIT, who developed this theory 
that large effects almost always begin with microscopic actions. Apparently, he hypothesized that even a butterfly's waft of his wings may very well contribute to the path that a tornado takes weeks later. Tiny beginnings, large things. Now, here's the deal. I got no idea about the butterfly effect or even what I think about the butterfly effect. But I can tell you the notion is biblical. Because this is how a Christian views the world. Think about this. What are the tiny things that we do in the microscopic? That little prayer that nobody sees you pray, but you've been praying it daily over and over again. That little weekend that you and your connect group from the church decided that instead of having a dinner, you were going to go do a service project together. Nobody saw that. That little droplet of gospel joy that came into your heart that offered you just that tiny little shred of hope. Nobody saw that. That moment that you took that decision to say, I'm not going to look at that lustful gaze. I'm not going to. No one viewed that. No one stood on the sidelines like, oh, good work, good job. Nobody saw that meal that you prepared and took over to a sick friend and left it for him. He didn't even get a thank you note. (gasps) Nobody saw that decision that I made not to cheat on that exam. But here's the deal. Christians continue to do it. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, (laughs) in 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 poverty, with barely a place to sleep at night, except out with the cattle in a trough, God was changing the entire course of human history. Nobody saw it. But see, in that chaotic scene, the world changed. Emmanuel has come. Nothing's going to be the same. Can't you feel Gabriel bristling? bristling? It's like, whoa, don't despise the day of small things because it's not small. History's turning on it. Man, I wish we had more time to talk about that. The invasion of a supernatural world, the advent of the God band, this upside down kingdom. Fourthly and finally, though, there's a rest of a sure salvation. Matthew 1.20, when the angel comes to talk to Joseph, when he does so, he actually adds a little tag on the end of his name as he addresses him. Did you notice this? Why does he do that? He says, Joseph, son of David. Why did he add that little tag on there? Well, I think it's purposeful because most commentators agree that the book of Matthew uh, is the most Jewish of the four gospels. And so he knows that he's appealing to this Jewish sensibility who again was entrenched in this notion that when God did rescue the world, it was going to happen through King David's ancestral line from the Old Testament. So the Messiah, the savior of the world was to come and put an end to all of these destructive forces in the world. But what had happened over time was, is that vision, which of course is quite true, had morphed into something misguided. Because the Jewish people began to understand the Messiah's benefit and what he was coming to do fundamentally as a freedom movement to save Jews. <laughs> and once they, once they sort of had conquered, then they would rule from Jerusalem just like the old days. Well, if that was your anticipation, no wonder you missed a little frail figure that was born in Bethlehem in a manger. But here's the thing. I think this is the reason why Gabriel, the angel, has to qualify for Joseph exactly what this title, son of David, would mean. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now you get it. (laughs) What's going on in this particular place is, is the angel is coming and saying that you cannot fix the world. 
Your, your, your efforts at change, whether it's on the societal level or the institutional level, will never even begin until you deal with the destructive forces of sin in your heart. That's where it starts. Every Christian came to believe this. I don't know what God's doing, but I know what he's working with in me. He's dealing with me. And here's the first thing that's a little bit hard to swallow. I've said it before. Christmas is not a compliment to you. Christmas is coming along and saying that my problem in sin was so bad that it could only be solved and dealt with by the advent of God himself in flesh through the most humble of means. But here's the thing. What we hope happens at Christmas is about this all-important struggle to sort of see and appropriate the gospel in such a way so that this God-separating, soul-destroying people-devouring effects of sin can actually start to be stemmed. That the tide can stop. And even it's in the small little ways. Because once it does, it begins to lighten my soul and you begin to soar. And when you soar and you're wondering, you change. That is the Christian view of change. It's the reason why we sometimes struggle with change so much. Uh, look, to finish this series, actually this entire semester, actually this entire year, I told you that I've been reading through the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy again, and uh, I'm reminded of one of my favorite scenes very much towards the end of the book, almost towards the very last, where the sort of limp and lifeless bodies of Frodo and his good friend Sam lie on a rock surrounded by the crumbling and melting uh, Mount Doom. And while they're there, they just, they just resign themselves to their own deaths. You know, they're emaciated from months of malnourishment. They're exhausted from this ceaseless conflict from these demonic creatures. But they're satisfied that finally the ring of power, it's been destroyed. It's fallen into the fires. And so they lay down on the rock to die and wait for the flows of lava to overtake them and destroy them. But in that one little moment, Frodo looks over at Sam and he gets a little bit nostalgic about his good little friend who's been through this hell with him. And he looks over at him and he says, you know, I'm really glad you're here with me. Here at the end of all things, Sam. But here's the thing that they don't know. High, high above them is the great eagle, whose name is Guahir. And at the very last moment, Guahir swoops down just moments before the rock is destroyed in fire. And he scoops up the two tiny little hobbit bodies in his mighty talons to carry them away into the fields of Athelion where they can heal for the last time. I'm moved by that story because I keep thinking that maybe that's the message for this Christmas season. Because has there ever been a year in our memories that's felt a little bit more like Frodo's probably felt in that moment? That here I am at the end And we look at each other, and maybe it's when we go to bed at night that we lay down our beds and we think, well, here we are at the end of all things. Where I'm about to close this chapter. There's no way. It's all lost. Everything's crumbling around me. The world will never unite. We'll never sit side by side across races in a church. My candidate will never succeed at implementing the policy that I know will fix it. This pandemic, (laughs) is it ever going to end? Is it ever even going to abate? And we're tempted to look around and say to ourselves, here at the end of all things, 
Hey, but here's the deal. Don't miss the eagles. Because high above, and actually in a strangely high above, but in this profoundly nondescript, tiny little nook in Palestine, in Bethlehem, salvations come. And it's in the fullness of time. And Christmas is this time that reminds God's people, we've not arrived at the end of all things. It's not over because he's working. And it probably is not working in big, massive, utterly visible ways that you can see and trace all the dots and be like, aha, I see it. It never happens that way. It happens in the tiny, the little obediences That one little choice I made not to push back. That one little choice I made to turn away. That one little discipline that I put back. Yes, I'm going to make another New Year's resolution this year. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do it again. Nobody saw it. But in those places, God began to weave hope and he began to weave healing. And when Gabriel saw that, he was in wonder. And he longed to look into it along with the rest of the angels. Shouldn't that be an invitation for us as well to see the exact same thing? We're not at the end of all things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can say it, but we don't really feel it if we're honest. So we're asking that you would be gracious to us and walk us into a sense of vision that the angels had. That we might see you in a way in which we didn't that we see that all human history led to what came at Christmas and the little sparkles of wonder that are in the twinkle lights on our trees, they were calling away from themselves to you and what you were doing. So would you grant us that vision and change us so that we might have something to indeed tell on mountains. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.